Hey, everyone. Just a quick reminder, on October 14th, we're going to be bringing the Over the Edge podcast live to Edge Computing World. We'll be recording episodes from the event. And if you'd like to attend, the folks at Edge Computing World have given our listeners a generous 30% discount. So head on over to edgecomputingworld.com and use promo code over the edge, one word for 30% off. There's also a link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Alex Resnick, distinguished technologist at Hewlett Packard Enterprise and chair of Etsy's Mech ISG. Alex literally wrote the book on multi-access edge computing and as chair of Etsy Mech, he's helping to pioneer the industry standards for enabling the intelligent edge. In this interview, Alex explains the role of standard bodies like Etsy, how standards drive market adoption, and why they are important for the future of the edge intersection between telcos, cloud providers, and developers. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. This episode of Over the Edge is brought to you by Seagate. Seagate's new Cortex Intelligent Object Storage software is 100% open source. It enables efficient capture and consolidation of massive, unstructured datasets for the lowest cost per petabyte. Learn more and join the community at Seagate.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Alex Resnick, Distinguished Technologist at HPE and Chair of Etsy Mac, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge Project. Today, I'm here with Alex Resnick, Distinguished Technologist at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. He also chairs Etsy's Mech Industry Specification Group. We're going to talk to Alex about his career in technology, his current roles at HPE, and everything Edge Computing. Hi, Alex. How are you doing today? Hi, Matt. I'm good. So, I mean, you're one of the Edge Computing OG. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've, you've been doing it okay. for a while, but before we really get into edge computing, I'm, I'm super curious, how did you even get into technology? Because you have an engineering background, right? Yeah. You know, I was good in math when I was going to college and I sucked at dealing with blood and the next best career was to go into IT because I was in New York City. But the school I went to didn't have a computer science major, so I wound up doing E. And at some point, the chair of the department taught a required course called Introduction to Communication Theory. And John von Neumann. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, now his name is Mel Sandler, but he spent a lot of time doing something for the CIA with the CIA. He was never too specific, but his course was real fun. And so the, the whole IT career uh, plan got sidetracked into doing comms. And that's how I wound up in this industry. Oh, that's really interesting. Did you ever do any telecommunication engineering or have you? Well, well no, I did. Yeah, okay. I did. Yeah. So the way I wound up in edge computing is through the M part of it, which really comes out of the telecom, right? I My whole career was, to some extent, still is on the telecom side. And it's just, to, well, with the exception of the first job, which really was IT. And then now there's convergence of the two, which just makes it that much more fun. 
That's awesome. So how does, for our listeners who don't maybe understand the whole world of telecom, what, what is Etsy? Etsy is officially the European Telecommunications Standards Institute, is what it stands for. And it does two things. One is it serves as an almost regulatory body. So they publish things they call harmonized standards. And those are the standards or other policies that harmonize things like spectrum policy, et cetera, across the European states. Something that's uniquely necessary in Europe because there's this patchwork of fairly small countries that are highly integrated, but yet really fully sovereign, right? And the other thing that they've done is technology standards. And they used to do it just themselves and just for Europe. So GSM, right? The famous GSM, the first mobile standard. Not to be confused with the GSMA. <laughs> yes, not to be confused with the GSMA, although that's where the name comes from, right? But uh, GSM was an Etsy standard initially. What has happened with Etsy is with the formation of 3GPP, which Etsy drove, and in fact still does the logistics for 3GPP, right? They've lost a lot of that, or they rather transitioned that leadership in the mobile technology standards over to 3GPP. That had to happen for it to become a global standard to get the buy-in of the other seven global organizations. But what it also did is it diminished the role of Etsy for a long time as an international standard setting body. And then over the last half a decade with NFV, they came roaring back. And so for all intents and purposes, right, Etsy is now an international technology standard setting body, a really, truly global, in addition to really being a European kind of regulatory st standards body. And I probably state their European regulatory role somewhat incorrectly because I know exactly how much of what they do has advisory and how much of it has a statutory power. But, so don't quote me on that. But they have that role, which is European and the technology standards role, which is where Etsy Mac fits, that is really global. And how does Etsy relate to the 5G standards? So the official 5G mobile technology is being standardized by 3GPP. Of course, Etsy is structurally, 3GPP is a consortium of, I believe, seven international or geographical standards organizations, which are Etsy, Addis, a Korean one, a Chinese one, I forget all the names. So it formally relates to it that way. But when people talk about 5G standards, they very often talk about things beyond what 3GPP specifies, which is the mobile network. And so in some sense, API standards that we develop in Mac are 5G standards. The Etsy and the V standards, they're really necessary to make 5G a reality. Yeah, Can't. I certainly think of them as part of the 5G standard, even if they're not in the same body. Right, and Etsy has been producing them. So we're kind of, I'd say we're part of the mosaic of standardization that's necessary to make 5G a reality. And when I say we, I mean Etsy. Yeah, or, or well, and everybody else too. We're all working right. <laughs> towards making that a standard. Right, from a standards, right? There's the standards mosaic, then there's the people that actually build stuff. Yeah. And I don't mean that facetiously, right? Standards have a role, but their role is not to build stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So your current role with Etsy is the chair of the MEC ISG, the International yeah. Standards Group. And that 
stands for multi-access edge computing. Originally, it was mobile edge computing. We're going to get into that, but let's yeah. let's cover what the role is today. So how long have you been the chair and what is your role as the chair of Etsy Mac? So I've been the chair. It's now about three and a half years. The group is close to six years old. Nuritz Brecker was the founding chair. And then after two years, she moved on. And so I took over that position. So it's been a while. It's been three and a half years. And uh, what is your role? What do you do? I mean, because you have you work for Hewlett Packard, <laughs> Hewlett Packard Enterprise. What does a chair do in the standards group? So I'll give you my my view of what the role of a standards group chair is. Okay, it is specifically to not do any technical work. <laughs> That's what the people that come to the standards group for. So you are a facilitator, right? Your job is to make sure that the group runs smoothly. So that during technical discussions, which can get fairly contentious at times because you've got different companies bringing in ideas, but they're not just ideas. There's a significant investment behind their own way of doing things. You have to facilitate an atmosphere in which they can arrive at a mutually acceptable compromise. Right. That's the goal. Not to make anyone happy. Just to arrive at something that's mutually acceptable. It's a little bit like Congress. Well, not nowadays. But <laughs> well, yes, yeah, that's true. Right, like Congress is supposed to be. That should be their goal, but it's not. So that's one goal. And the other role is you're the promoter in chief for that particular standards body. So that's what I try and do as Some as of the us chair. call that marketing and sales. How does that feel like as an engineer? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, so, you know, the interesting thing is right for the last... Oof, Four and a half years, I've been at HP, and it's a technical sales position that I've been at and not an engineering position. So the two kind of jive fairly well. Yeah, I can see it. How much of your time does it take up? Yeah, I enjoy doing it. I really don't keep track of it. And the other part of it is, of course, if you're doing sales and business development, it's not like it's a nine to five job. So you go, oh, well, every day, three hours of it gets spent on Azimac. It's So I don't really know how much of my time is taken up on my primary job. I call it an HP sponsored hobby. Got it. They certainly enable me to do it. But what, the, um, the job or the chairmanship? I, I do. Uh, no, the, the, chairmanship. the chairmanship. Got it. The job is, oh, man. <laughs> The job is very difficult and it's worth every single penny that HP is paying me. Right. They're, so they're getting more value than they expected. They're, they're getting more value. Absolutely. That's, that's yes. really excellent, especially this day and age. So what is multi-access edge computing? So shameless self-promotion. I wrote a book. Well, I co-wrote it with a couple of other guys. Available on Amazon. We'll put it in the show notes. If, if, if you read the first chapter, uh, which I guess you'll now find out I wrote that one for better or worse, um, I talk about it this way. I go look at it from the edge. The C stands for computing or cloud, right? So it's first and foremost the cloud. Then you get to the E and it's the edge. So it's an edge cloud. And the M, whatever you choose to attach to it, really indicates that you're taking this edge cloud and it's located somewhere in a communication service provider's network. So it's not an edge cloud in an enterprise's on-prem location. It is somehow a part of what before 5G, and we still call a service provider network, I, I would argue it's time to start calling it a telco cloud. And so that's what Mac is. So I always tell people, remember that first and foremost, it's edge computing. It's not something 
different than edge computing. It is edge computing. It's just you're going to do some things differently or you're going to do some more things with it because of where it's located. And that enables you to do some other things. Yeah, it's interesting you call it a, a telco cloud because the shift in the name in 2017, I think, when it was originally called mobile edge computing, which makes sense. It was primarily for mobile phones. That's primarily where Etsy does its work. And now it's multi-access edge computing, which implies wireline and other access network methods. Yeah. And so why do you call it a telco cloud as opposed to an edge cloud or something Communication else? Communication servers provide the cloud. Because so I'm going to pick an Amazon. I want to pick an Amazon, right? Set aside wavelength. What's edge to Amazon? It's an outpost. So an outpost can't just be deployed in a telco cloud because it was designed for an enterprise to have on-prem. But when you look at the whole management of it, right? So you can wheel the gear into a telco cloud. But unfortunately, you can't position it as something public that telcos edge cloud customers can can use because it's a very different way of management. What an outpost was really designed to do is if I'm running my own small and mid-sized company and I take advantage of AWS and I need something on-prem, but I want to feel like I actually have an AWS on-prem, right? I, I want that seamless management. I don't, I want to not worry about having to target a different cloud for my apps for the edge, et cetera, right? That's what an outpost was designed to me. And and same thing with Microsoft, same thing with Google, right? That's an edge cloud. And if you went and you asked them, what is edge? They would say, this is edge. Uh, when you look at local zones that AWS is deploying, that's still that kind of an edge. It's not a telco edge. It's not an edge that is intimately part of a telco network is designed to specifically be public, right? And connected to directly through the connectivity that a telco customer provides, wireless or wire, this kind of irrelevant. So that's where then you need to keep in mind where the location of the edge is and what you can do with it. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned wavelength and you dismissed it, but isn't wavelength like core? So wavelength is designed for Mac. Yes. Right. Right. Now, it's Amazon's Mac play. And yes, it's build an outpost, but I think what people will find is the way you interact with Wavelength is going to be very different than the way you would interact with an outpost on your own premises, even though most of the gear underneath, at least in the beginning, is going to be the same, right? So it's a different concept. Yeah, for yeah. but I understand the, the outpost form factor makes it easy for them to... Well... <laughs> I would dispute that. <laughs> well, on the PowerPoint, it, it makes it easier. It's just a, an outpost box. I, I, yeah. Well, it's certainly easier than wheeling in their whole data yeah. set. You've clearly been in the, uh, the technology industry it, long it, enough it, it to is be a the, curmudgeon. It, <laughs> yes. In that particular case, yeah. that is far from an optimal form factor, in my opinion, for Mac. But again, I'm sure there's plenty of folks, in it, especially at Amazon, who will disagree with me. Sure, sure. Well, and it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the long-term plan either. If it turns out that's something that's in high demand, they will, they're very customer focused and deliver something like that. And there are other cloud providers that are also right. looking to do and stuff. To, be, to give Amazon credit, yes. Yeah. When they see demand, and they see that they did something not quite right, they fix it very, very quickly. Yeah. So I'll play a little game here, which is, which is I'm going to tell you what I think the origin story of 
mech is. And then I want you to correct me because I'm sure I'm wrong. I was told that the origins of Mac actually came from Nokia. Nokia had a program they called Liquid Apps. And the idea behind Liquid Apps is, you know, again, this is for our readers, not for, I mean, our listeners, not for you. But telco networks historically have been built out of dedicated appliances. And these were boxes that you'd buy from Nokia or back in the day, Alcatel Lucent or Ericsson and all of that. And you would drop it in and it like, that was it. But you look inside these things and they tend to have Intel servers. And Nokia recognized a potential opportunity that if they over-provisioned the capabilities in these boxes, that potentially you could run applications on it. You could run other people's workloads. And if you stitched a bunch of these together, you might actually have a cloud. And somehow, you know, and then magic happened, that became the origin of, of Etsy Mech. But I don't know if that's true. Do you have a version of the origin story that aligns with that or is maybe different? So clearly Nokia's Liquid Apps program was a significant catalyst. Because if you go back, there is a formal origin. There is a white paper that was published by Etsy, by people formally through Etsy, which then drove the establishment of the group. And if you look at the at who published the white paper, it was Nokia. And I know those folks. It was out of the group that did Liquid Apps, as well as Huawei, as well as Vodafone. What you're saying is now, I never worked for Nokia, so I don't know if it's true, but it sounds very plausible as part, part of, of it, the origin yeah. story, right? You have to remember the other thing that has happened by then is NFV has started gaining traction. So what year, what year was so, this that the white paper was published? Uh, this was 2013. Yeah, so okay, that's a definitely edge OG. Actually, I may be wrong. No, 20, 2014. 2014, okay. I think. So you have these apps running they're still telco apps. You still can't manage them the way OpenStack manages a cloud. You need more, which is why NFE is there. So you needed to have that in place as a standard in order to drive Mac. So its presence enabled Nokia to go public with it. But the other thing that happened is, again, Nokia found like-minded companies that said, yes, this is a direction that now makes sense to explore not just among the operators, but also among the vendors. Yeah, and it it does make sense. I mean, if you really have a vision of attracting developers that want to deploy something globally, it's going to have to be, have some level of vendor neutrality and some level of network neutrality. And so a standards body is probably one of the best ways to accomplish that. And yes, Nokia, you could say Nokia was definitely a pioneer in this way of thinking, but if they were the only one, or let's put this, I don't know how far back Liquid Apps goes, or I may have some inkling, right? But when Etsy Mac happened, even if Nokia was a pioneer at some point, they were no longer the only ones that were thinking about this direction. Yeah. And Liquid Apps were public by that point anyway. I mean, they've made lots of noise about it. Sure. Anyway, so people had known, right? So this kind of thinking for the edge had caught up by that. Yeah, and your point about NFE makes a lot of sense because when I've gone back and looked at some of the original Liquid Apps materials, uh, which are hard to find, but sometimes I found some YouTube videos and stuff. Again, they're still in the early days in this mindset of it's running on side inside our appliance that's deployed. And NFE completely upended the idea of an appliance. It's like, no, 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 we're going to have, sure, we're going to have specialized RF circuitry and stuff, but... Ultimately, a bunch of these network functions are going to run on white box servers in a facility that looks something like a data center. 
and presumably has the kind of cloud orchestration capabilities that an OpenStack or some other solution would provide. And so that seems to me to make a lot of sense. And so let's tease that out a little bit. So there's a lot of functionality in that's oversimplified. Let's call it the RAM, the radio access network, which, you know, is a combination of the baseband unit, the radio head, a bunch of other things. That the connection between the computer that's running the mech application and the computer or hardware that's running the network functions for the baseband unit, for whatever else, for eSIPRI, for, for all these other things, they don't have to be the same machine. And increasingly, they're probably not going to be the main machine. Is that true? Same machine. Sorry, same machine, not the main machine. I think it's true. Yeah. And so that makes sense because you can isolate the network functions. You can, you know, they have discrete timing that VMs could throw off yeah. and things like that. And again, as a, an occasional student of the evolution of Mac, I think I noticed a point where that transition became really profound in that Etsy standardized around an, an API, as opposed to saying, here's like the cloud it's going to run on. It's like, no, no, here's how you can have cloud workloads running in the same facility on different computers or even in nearby adjacent facilities that are, yeah. you know, a sub one millisecond fiber run apart, but are talking to the radio network over an API. Am I accurate in, observe, in that observation? Yeah, yeah. And, and so for a while there, there was an expectation that we're going to standardize something functionally and something for the telco cloud. And I think that's driven out of looking at say, what 3GPP standardizes, which is a lot of functionality. But really, that was a mistaken impression for two reasons. One is just what is the role of standards? The role of standards is interoperability, right? And when you're talking about devices that are communicating over a physical medium, there has to be some level of real functionality definition in order to ensure that interoperability. As you start going up and you're running on what is standard computer architectures and standard networking architectures, right? Whether it's SDN or whatever, that need for functional standardization goes away. And when I started being involved with standards many years ago, an old IEEE 802.11 standard hand told me that Standards that forget that their only reason for existing is interoperability fail. People just won't adopt them, right? So you don't want to try and do more than you need to do. And so that's one reason why APIs came into being. The other one is, again, remember, Mac starts with a C. It's a cloud computing standard, right? We play ultimately in somehow the same space as the de facto API standards that a global cloud platform provider does. Now they don't do a standards body, they just publish their own standards, right? Their own APIs, right? But that's the space. We don't need to do more than that because that's all you need for interoperability in the areas where we wanted, we felt interoperability was needed, which is in the case of Mac, two very distinct areas. One is between the application providers and the platform that those applications are going to run on in terms of how you expose certain services. 
And the other one, as an extension of what NFE does, right, is in the lifecycle management of the applications. How do you do lifecycle? How does an operator who owns this edge cloud or operates it actually deploy these third-party applications on the edge? Right, so that's where we focused. That's where a standard was needed. Everything else is for others to define. Yeah. Now, what if I'm an app developer and for all kinds of reasons, I'm like, well, I don't want to develop for you know, one operator's cloud. And even if Etsy Mac provides a mechanism, and I don't know if it does, I'd be interested in knowing this, present mechanism for federating cloud capacity across multiple operators. Does it do that? Does it? It's a work item we're currently working on. Okay. So at some point, I could make a decision that says, okay, I want to write a I want to write an application that uses the, the MEC cloud standard. Um, and that means that I can deploy my application on resources across multiple, theoretically across multiple operators and get some leverage, you know, write once, deploy many. But there's also a model which says, I actually want to provision Azure instances or EC2 instances, and I want Microsoft and Amazon to figure out how to relate to the telcos so that I don't have to use this new API. I can use and hire developers that come from this gigantic pool, tens of millions of people that the major cloud providers have assembled, as opposed to the dozens of developers that maybe today know how to deploy mech applications. So so in that relationship between the cloud providers and the, the telcos, there's technical interfaces, there's business interfaces, there's competitiveness. Is, is it a zero-sum game between the cloud operators and the telcos, or is there an opportunity for them? Close to it. So I've publicly said for a long time that in the final state of this mech public edge computing game, there is presence from all or most of the major cloud providers in most of the operator networks. Because at the end of the day, you have small developers in a garage who are tied and committed to AWS, and you want to capture them. There's 10,000 of them. You don't know, right? The whole game is you don't know which one's to target because you don't know which one's going to be the unicorn. So you just want to capture them. And I think it's hard to capture them in any, in any other way than allowing AWS in. The question, so in that sense, it's not a zero-sum game. It's a known commodity, right? And you're going to do the same thing for Azure and and Anthos and Tencent in China, right? The question becomes, how much of your business do you cede to these guys? Do you cede all of it? In which case, what do telcos are? I know how do telcos feel about that? Well, (laughs) never again. Then they are... Right, and they are going to be exactly where they were when the 4G game kind of lost itself out. They were connectivity providers. Or do you try and capture some of the value that going up the stack brings by bringing your own cloud? And if you try and do that, right, then you are back into a problem where, well, you can't have an AT&T and and a Vodafone and a Verizon and a Telefonica and a KDDI cloud. I mean, you can and you will. But to a developer, they have to have a standardized set of APIs. That's the role that Etsy Mac tries to fill. And I always tell people when I pitch Etsy Mac, once you understand that, right, if telcos are going to succeed in capturing that value, 
they will have standards in a space where Etsy Mac plays. That doesn't mean they have to adapt Etsy Mac standards, but they will have to agree on a set of standards in that space. Our value is we're the only standard right now that plays in that space. Yeah. So, so you can either go and form a new group and start from scratch, or you can go with Etsy Mac. Now, now there have been some attempts over the years of telco attempting to offer something that looks like a cloud for a while. Verizon was buying data centers and things like that. And outside of some of the really strange examples like Rakuten, I can't think of a telco provider that's actually successfully built a developer program and attracted lots of developers. Can you? Yeah. So telcos have, let's put all the cultural thing aside, right? In 4G, they had a fundamental problem. Developers wanted to talk to global companies that cross telco lines, right? Because at the end of the day, if I'm a developer, I want to be able to capture all the users, which means I need to be able to cross, you know, in the U.S. right now, it's three guys, four if you count this. And and we're the easy country. There's some 50. Right. (laughs) In Europe, and that's not counting. Well, we look like that if you go to the rural providers. Right. That's true. Telcos were always disadvantaged in that sense. The over-the-top players offered a way out, and they did it in a way where the telcos really didn't have the leverage to push back, in the sense that the OTT guys spoke directly to the consumer and said, hey, we're giving you this thing for free. Now go and yell at your telco because your connectivity Although one could argue that those OTT applications are, in fact, what drove the next wave of, of course. smartphone adoption and all that. So it, it hasn't been a total loss. It hasn't been all <laughs> right. I'm oversimplifying. I, mean, I, I looked at Verizon's earnings statement. They're doing all right. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> but when you talk about this 4G story and how the telcos lost, sure. the yes, Verizon is doing all right. But when, you, but when they look at the revenues of an AWS yeah. and then they look at their own, they go, uh, yeah, it's nice to have money. Sure. No, they got in run. They got in. The other yeah. guy's house is tens, yeah. right? And you could say, hey, they weren't as aggressive. It's a different culture, right? I suspect you take all that aside and you just throw it out. The environment would have still forced the same final outcome because they had no leverage. Yeah. When you go to 5G, specifically because applications that so many of the 5G applications need the edge. And edge means location. They now have this leverage. Now, what they're going to do with it, right? Suddenly, what you're seeing is Amazon and Microsoft and lots of other people have to talk directly to telcos. They can no longer talk to the telcos customers. Not to get the new features. Right. They have to talk to, to telcos. That's real leverage. Yeah. Well, in, in real value, too. I look at, like, for example, the network slicing capability of 5G. And if I was a developer and could wave my magic wand, I would love to be able to use all of my tooling on, say, Amazon to not only orchestrate my services out in edge locations that are in close proximity to the access network. But orchestrated down to a slice. Yes, to provision a slice. And if you don't have a, if Amazon doesn't have a business relationship with the service provider, there's no slice that's going to happen. Yes. Yes. So... All of that, the foundation is different. Now, that doesn't mean that the end result isn't going to wind up in the same place. But it's certainly a very 
a much more interesting dynamic. Yeah, because, it's, a, it's a new poker game. Yes. New, new, set of, yes. new set of cards. And, and the Telcos cards are much better. Yeah. And let's see what they're going to do with it. Yeah, fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's not a... I'm enjoying watching it from the inside. I, I am too. I am enjoying watching it too. And I think, you know, it's going to be, it's an interesting world. So one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about related to this is what's some of the functionality that Mech exposes to a developer that I wouldn't have access to if Mech didn't exist? Like what's unique? So in two sentences or two phrases, information about the underlying network or Information that's only available in the underlying network and the ability to steer traffic based on that information. Okay, so let me give you an example. Very, very simple example. You are an application. Let's say you're a game developer because that's what everybody talks about with Edge. And you've got this game and in order to make it work, you really need an instance of some of your services that are on right next to the users. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I take my phone and I start this game up on my phone. And so now you got to go and I'm on Verizon. So you got to spin up somewhere in Verizon's network. You got to spin up an instance that's next to me. Now, you could, of course, ask my phone for the location and say, hey, based on this location, there is a server that Verizon told me is located close by there. And so that's where I'm going to go and provision my instance, right? And that's people's thinking now. There's pitfalls in that thinking. One is what you really care about is my location on Verizon's network. And if I'm connected to a macro tower versus some kind of a small cell, can make a huge difference in the network location because those network paths, depending on how the network is designed in a telecom, may not interconnect way in a core network. So you spin up an edge distance, an edge instance, you know, I may be 100 meters from the macro tower, but if I'm not on it, that's the wrong place right. to spin it up. Yeah. And you really don't have the, that information to give Verizon. The other thing is, telcos, rightly so, may not be that willing to just expose what the topology of their edge centers looks like to every single application provider, which of course makes it difficult for an application provider to say, spin it up either. Yeah. What you really wanna do is you wanna take my identity, which you can easily get, right? From the networks and when say- you say my hey, identity, you mean the end user, the device or the like, phone yeah, or the person? Yeah, like the end user phone number or something and say, hey, I've got a client with this ID, whether it's a phone number or something else, right? I need an edge instance spun up for this client per SLAs that we have with us. Let the operator do that. Now, in order to do that, right, you have to have, because, you know, the operator may know that there is a phone connected there. They have no idea what apps I'm running, right? So you have to have some agents. You have to have some APIs that you can query and find out where things are running, right? And then you have to say that, hey, yeah, for my traffic, when that instance gets spun up, this is how, this is the kind of traffic, right? So these are the five tuples in the simplest case that I need terminated here. These are the five tuples that you send back to your core network and out to, to the internet. Again, not something that an operator would or should have wants to know about your application. They just want the instance to tell you to do that when it's spun up on the platform. So those are the kinds of things that Etsy Mac enables. 
I've, I've seen a phrase in some of the, the writings about Etsy Mac uh, where they use the word contextualize or contextualization. And I think I know what that means, but I'm super interested in, in how uh, Etsy Mac uses that and how they think about it. What it like really With does that, for me. What does it really do for me? I've, I've never used that. Oh, okay. <laughs> because most people won't know what right. right? But <laughs> it's not a bad term, right? Basically, we allow you to understand the context of where your users are and where the instances are. Like you were saying, whether I'm, a, I'm attached to some macro tower with this latency or some small cell that's like right. routing through some you know, weird... Let's say, let's say you have an operator-managed network in a mall where there's a, a Starbucks. Yeah. It's super important for you to do things right, to know whether your user is connected to a Starbucks, to a Wi-Fi in a Starbucks. Yeah to your network or whether that user is connected to a master yeah, base station. you're not going to know that from an IP address. Not if it comes out of the same NAT back there, right? So that context is super important. And it's important for all kinds of reasons, not just deploying the instances, but hey, what if you want to do targeted advertising? Well, it's super important for you to know who's in Starbucks. And, and the operator the can charge for that contextualization. Yes. Yeah. You, you want to target the Starbucks customers? Guess what? I have that information and I'd be happy to share yeah, it for the right so, By the way, speaking of origin stories, right? One of the APIs that we've standardized was actually originally defined way back in a small cell forum. And then OMA standardized it and we basically included it in a group of things that, that we do. And it's a, it was called Zonal Presence API. And all it really allows you to do is query and say, hey, this device, what zone is it? Now you're going to ask me, what the hell does that do? Well, it gives an operator the ability to create a zone that says all the Starbucks in central New Jersey. And now you can target your advertising to say, hey, it's not that hit that Starbucks, hit that Starbucks, hit that Starbucks. Hey, did I hit all the Starbucks in central New Jersey or, or did I miss two? No, no, you can go to them and you can say, hit all the Starbucks in central New Jersey yeah. if you are the operator that owns that network, right? Yeah. And let them do that work. The operator does that work well. And you're happy to pay something for having that very contextual zone created for you because you're not paying somebody to sit in front of a spreadsheet and go, yeah, let me make sure that I'm still doing That's this. That's super right. interesting. So then, so it potentially becomes a relationship where Starbucks can partially monetize their Wi-Fi as advertising space, use that to offset the fees of the private LTE or the private 5G or oh, the Wi-Fi that the telco's provider. And in exchange, the, the telco provider can provide this like ad uh, placement contextualization. We were doing this because I was in a small cell forum, right? So we were doing this back in the early 2010s. And small cell forum was going to, well, it was going to build on that and essentially stop because Etsy Mac came along and we said, well, the right place to do it is in a standards group, not, um, not in an industry alliance that really should promote that, hey, we should use this standard or that standard, right? But yeah, the, these ideas are not new. They're just becoming a reality now. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's shift gears a little bit. So one of the, the most interesting conversations around edge computing, although I find people trying to shift the conversation, but certainly for most of the time that I've been on edge computing, latency has been one of the big discussions. And clearly latency is important. And latency is a function of location, speed of light, and number of network hops, more or less. 
But now there seems to be two different camps emerging. And I think partly it's because of where they come from and what their assets are, and that's what they need to argue. So if you're in the business, so I'll give an example, and I don't mean to pick on Microsoft because I'm a big fan of Microsoft, but Microsoft says we are 30 milliseconds from everybody on the planet. Uh, now, whether that's true or not. Wait, wait. 30 seconds most of the time or 30 seconds guaranteed? Well, that, right, thir- right. Are you willing to sign yeah. an SLA that says, if I'm at 31 milliseconds more than 1% of the time, I'm going to pay you 2 million bucks every time that... Well, that's... Okay, so that's a whole different subject, which is the SLAs and the discreteness, because you're right. It's, it's like j- jitter, which is the variance on the latency is way more important than the latency in a lot of cases. Yeah. But what, I, what I'm trying to, to set up is this very distinct conversation that's emerging that I'm just starting to notice now, which there's the camp of 30 milliseconds. And then there's a camp of like sub 10, sub five milliseconds. And the folks that are in the 30 millisecond camp, and again, this may be because this is your confirmation bias, right? You see the world, you see the use cases that you can actually support. They say, look, we're not seeing any demand for latencies less than 30 milliseconds. So we're going to focus on 30 milliseconds. And these, this is coming from the large colo providers and the, the large cloud providers and all this. And then there's a whole other group that's saying, no, no, it's sub five milliseconds, sub 10 milliseconds. When you look at some of the use cases around sub five milliseconds, they're like, oh, it's going to be for like robotic lays and it's going to be for autonomous driving. But you talk to the people that run million dollar robotic lays and autonomous driving and they say, it's not going to happen. There's no way the the safety control loop in a car or robotic lathe is going to be controlled by the network. And look, I'm not taking a position here, but I'm interested if you're seeing those camps emerge and if you personally or if Etsy as an organization has started to form some hypotheses around this. So so I personally, yes. Etsy, no, because from an Etsy Mac point of view, it's it's relevant. Okay. I want to know your personal opinion then. Right, right. We can tell you what a latency of an, of an API is. Me personally, a lot of the hype for 5G was driven by those low latencies, right? And that drove the presence of edge computing. And so many years ago, when 5G conversation just started, I attended a talk by Gerhard Hertweis, who was a big early promoter out of Dresden, right? And he was talking about tactile internet, right? So you have actual tactile feedback on, let's say, your screen. But the processing happens in the cloud. Well, guess what? You need a couple of, you need single digit milliseconds. VR needs sub 10. AR, VR, uh, yes, right. Uh, to make people sick. And, yeah. Industrial automation, things like vehicular automation needs sub 10. And they still do. And they are going to come. The problem is those are not the low hanging fruit. And if you're going to invest gazillions of dollars in rolling out as Edge Cloud. You want some low-hanging fruit that can allow you to recoup that investment right now. When you look at the low-hanging fruit, I didn't hear a 30, I heard 20. But the reality is with a 20 or 30, it's not single digits. And more importantly, it allows you to place it in your CEOs. So what used to be your CEOs, right? Your first-line data centers as opposed to having to go out and put it in a cell tower. And where you don't where you need lower than that tends to be in large enterprises, which have their data centers, right? So it's not a telco network. You usually have an enterprise edge already available. That's why I think the real industry, hey, 
I need to go and make money. I need to go and sell. Certainly when I sell stuff for HP or I attempt to sell, we talk about the 20 millisecond stuff, right? Because that's where somebody can recoup their investment now, which means we can make a convincing case that they should go and start deploying edge computing. What are some of the, the use cases that are in demand today that are kind of in that 20 millisecond sweet spot? So it's really very use case dependent for each customer. But I can tell you what were a lot of the markets that we're addressing. Markets that have a lot of remote locations, right? And so you have an SD-band problem, but you also have applications that run at the remote locations and you can start doing things there. Can you give an example? I mean, anonymized? A national store that has outlets in every single... 7-Eleven or whatever. Major mall, yeah, right, some, or 7 right. Yes, something like that. It's a great thing for edge computing. And by the way, there you can go sub-20 because if you can aggregate back at the telco, but you can also just talk about placing compute at the location there that's operated and managed. So latency is usually not an issue there. Initial kind of industrial automation applications, they tend to be monitoring stuff. So you do video processing and then you go back to the core again. Latency right there, it's not even 20. There can just kind of latency insensitive. The next wave that I am personally very interested in, okay, where I think latency will start coming into play, but 20 milliseconds should be a huge improvement over what we have now. Zoom. My kids are having virtual classes on Zoom. They're all within, I mean, there's 20 connections into a Zoom session and it sucks because all these 20 connections go to a server somewhere. They're all within two miles yeah. of each if, other. If everybody's in the same network, you shouldn't have to send it back to some centralized point. You're absolutely right. And it used to be you go and you talk to video conferencing people and you go, yeah, but when are you ever going to have a case where at least one person is not and then once, yeah. as soon as they are... Really, and, that is a really good... I had asked that question recently, and I said, edge computing isn't going to make that big of an improvement because somebody else is on the other side of the world. And you know what? I kept scratching my head. When would you ever have that? I bet 80% of Zoom usage today is hyper-local. Uh, certainly some... Yeah, I probably wouldn't go All that high, schools. but some percentage. Yeah, you're right. That is really interesting. And also, and I thought of another thing, and that is there's been a lot of research. I don't know if any of it's been commercialized where they do with video conferencing some of the same things they do with video games, where they predict the movement and, because you, you've got motion, right? Your head has inertia and things like that. And maybe they, and so they have some algorithms that are running locally. They're doing really sophisticated. So you're not, you're not having to send the full video image back and forth every you know, fraction of a second. Again, I don't know, but I suspect sub 20 is enough. And when you get to that sub 20, again, the difference is it's not linear. It's when can you move your point of presence for the application one network hop back. So if I have to stay right, let's talk about cellular. If I have to stay right at the cell tower, I don't really care whether the latency is five or seven or 10. If that forces me to stay at the cell tower, it forces me to stay at the cell tower. If I know that once it hits 18 milliseconds, I can move from the cell tower back to our CO, right? Or, or an aggregation point one. Well, that's a big difference, right? So it's not linear. It's a stepwise function. And I think right now the applications that people are seeing are, hey, you can, in most cases, you can live at that point where it's comfortable, yeah. where it's a big 
big and close the air conditioned building. Yeah. With racks. Yeah. Well, you know, it's well, I mean, so my company makes small air conditioned buildings with racks, There's right? Buildings. So they don't have to be big. Yes, but they are buildings. They are building. It's not a it's not a street side cabin. Well, you guys are not or maybe not yet deploying under every cell tower, right? And I don't even know whether that's the plan for well, you. Well, no, and we don't actually think the cell tower is the right place to deploy because that's right. where the remote radio head's going to be, but you need to be on the other side of the baseband unit. So you're going to be at an aggregation point that is 75 milliseconds. Uh, microseconds from from the radio so, uh, from from the cell tower, yeah, right? Yes, but but it's essentially the same thing. It's effectively at the cell tower. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's what I mean at the cell tower. So you know what's really interesting is so if if you kind of take all the politics out of this and you take all of the like fears of new technology and inertia and all this, you think about okay, so I'm a company and I've got a factory and I've got a data center and I have IT people. Do I really want to? own a data center? Do I really want to manage a data center? Can I do security as well as a cloud provider or a telco? Like there's all these questions, right? And my choice historically has been cloud or on-site or traditional colo. And the reason I keep things on site is a lot of times it's for security and latency. And you should make it clear to, to listeners, security also includes data privacy, right? In many cases, you don't want to or are not allowed to have that data leave your premises. Yeah, yeah. The data sovereignty issue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And where I was going with this is I can see a world. So today, if I went if I went to somebody and said, look, I have a value proposition for you. Get rid of the data center. I'll buy your data center and I'll tear it to the ground. I'll take all your servers and I'll stick them in a data center that's 30 kilometers away. That's sub one millisecond. You can come visit your stuff There'll be people there or there'll be remotely operated. It'll be in a conditioned area, but you're going to have the reliability of a fiber line. Now, I think a lot of IT people would say, okay, that feels like it's on site still. It's near-prem, which is the the word that I've heard people using. But then you say, okay, you trust your Wi-Fi network within your building. Shouldn't you also trust your 5G network in your building, right? Well, I can run your 5G network from servers sitting right next to your equipment in this near-prem location. Yes, I can give you that private network. And in fact, there's even a crazier version, which to our earlier discussion may or may not happen, is you don't even have to own those servers. They could be Microsoft's or Amazon's potentially, right? And so it's a really interesting- Or HP servers. Or GreenLake servers, that's right. Yeah, you buy them as a a service. Right, or the operator's servers. Or the operator servers, that's right, that's right. So it's a a really interesting, you know, we all talk about these these low latency applications and mobile things, but there's a really interesting set of use cases, which is just replacing on-prem with something that approximates on-prem very closely, but gives you all the benefits of the cloud, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's some of the low- hanging fruit that's out there. And like you said, I mean, 30 millis, especially if you can guarantee it and you're, if you're an operator, you'll guarantee it if somebody wants to guarantee. It's close enough to on-prem. Plus all the, let's not forget that operator data center runs critical infrastructure subject to a stack of regulations that thick. Yeah. So they can probably give you security guarantees. Yeah. Better than you could ever achieve with your little IT department if you're a small size right. company. And impressive uptime guarantees as well, because they do that all day long. Yes. So there's definitely a real significant value prop there around around enterprises. So yeah, it's it's like I said, it's a much more interesting game than a 4G game. Yeah. Okay. So So I want to uh, ask a couple last questions here. So if you look out into the future a little bit, 
and you think about where all these ideas of where we could be that we've talked about, there are a set of impediments or a set of things, dominoes, that if we could nudge or topple, everything would move faster. If you could go and push your finger against a few of the dominoes that would accelerate this whole new business model and edge computing and the deployment of hardware and the acceptance of standards and all of this, which dominoes would you push on? Show the operators the money. They want to see the money. And when I say that, they don't want to see a strategy talk about how much money the hyperscalers are making on the cloud and what portion of that market they can address and what the TAM for edge computing is in the wonderful imaginary world where everybody, every car is self-driving and people are sitting in VR glasses right now. They want to see the money in six months. And I think if you're showing them the money, it doesn't even have to be my experience. If you can show that the stuff pays for itself, they're going to be like, okay, it pays for itself. I'm in because yes, there's the promise of all that stuff out there. So this is a way for me to start. That finding those business cases today is they're out there, but it's hard work because it is always on a case by case basis. You can't, there's no standard formula that I've ever seen that says, you know, every single telco can do this and suddenly boom, they make money. And they put themselves in a right position where they that they want to be in, right? I mean, you can certainly say, I'm just going to make my sites available for Colo to Amazon, Google, and AWS. And you're going to make money. Right. And that's not necessarily a bad decision. And it's not mutually exclusive. Right. You can still do your but, own thing. But in many cases, that's not where that's not a direction that you want to go, right? So mm. I think that's the dominant. The technology is emerging. Now, the other big technological domino that's out there, automation technologies, those have to really, I mean, when you're talking about automating across a very, you're automating a cloud, which is highly distributed with very few, small footprint at each distribution, you have to have some really good automation. Yeah, there. yeah. it's a different class of problem. And that's coming along, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that's emerging. Uh, But there's not yet this dream orchestrator that you can hand it a workload and a price you're willing to pay, and it's going to go find some edge server to run it on, which is how everybody talks about it. And there's a whole, it's kind of almost there, but there's a whole host of little problems that, and I think in most cases, people are actually going about them wrong. They're trying to solve it as one big problem as opposed to partitioning it into lots of little problems and saying out of these little problems, 70% are actually solved. Let me just address, if I can address the other 30, I have a business case with something that's fairly simple. Yeah, and I, I have to agree with that, that that's been my experience, that in our business... That's a dig at some common friends of ours too. Yeah, exactly. In our business, we found that the projects that actually have a full end-to-end business attached to them are the ones that get traction ultimately. And otherwise, there's a lot of, sure, if you build it, we might come. But when there's a real end-to-end use case with a disruptive business and a business model attached to it, that's when it really gets traction. So I could see that being the primary driver is, you know, you get a, a dozen of those that essentially pays for the infrastructure build out that everybody else gets to benefit from. That's super interesting. Well, Alex, this has been such a delightful conversation. Likewise. You're certainly one of the guests that I would like to have back at some point and see how the world's changed. I'm actually looking forward to having these with actual beers or 
around the same table at some point. I missed that aspect of, of, of doing this job. Yeah. So I don't know when this episode is going to run, but so our audience knows this is, we're in the middle of COVID and Alex and I are on a Zoom call. Yeah. And yes, we'd both like to sit over, uh, over a beer and enjoy this conversation. Um, so lastly, uh, how, how can people uh, find out more about Etsy Mech and how can they find you online? Google for us. There's two pages that come up. One is a portal. And the other one is like, a, well, they're both public, but there's an official web page and a portal. I'm pretty sure my email is in both of those. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's very easy. Alex Resnick. Resnick is with a Z and with a K. So no C and it's a Z and not an S. Email is alexresnick at hpe.com. And I have a book. Go buy a book. Go buy my yeah, go book. Go buy a book. We'll put, we'll put a link to show. What's the title of the book? The title is Multi-Access Edge Computing in Action. And I have to say, when we wrote this book, we tried to talk about the environment, right? The, the sort of the market, the technology environment, as opposed to a technical thing. So it's kind of like about the things that we just were just talking about on this call. Awesome. Well, I'm, uh, I'm definitely going to go read it. And uh, I wish I had a chance to read it. I didn't even know you'd written the book. I found out uh, earlier this week when I was prepping for the call. Seriously? I love it. It's real. Can I get it on my Kindle? I don't know. Ask Amazon. Okay. I'm going to go try to buy it on my Kindle. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this call. And thank you, Matt, for having me. This, this was a lot of fun. Great. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Seagate is making mass capacity object storage open at last with Cortex Intelligent Object Storage Software. Cortex is 100% open source object storage that enables efficient capture and consolidation of massive unstructured datasets for the lowest cost per petabyte. Designed, built, and maintained by Seagate and a community of data scientists and enterprise storage experts, Cortex brings exabyte scalability to your private cloud. Learn more and join the community at seagate.com. Hey, everyone. Just a quick reminder, on October 14th, we're going to be bringing the Over the Edge podcast live to Edge Computing World. We'll be recording episodes from the event. And if you'd like to attend, the folks at Edge Computing World have given our listeners a generous 30% discount. So head on over to edgecomputingworld.com and use promo code OVERTHEEDGE, one word, for 30% off. There's also a link in the show notes.